The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Gaiad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Uh, joining me for the hour is Jeff Snyder, who's got a phenomenal following, tremendous research and content. I encourage everybody here to uh, follow some of his work. Uh, Jeff, for those who are not familiar with your background, just talk about who you are, how'd you get involved in markets, and what are you doing now? Well, I started as a portfolio manager way, way back during the dot-com age and uh, found myself doing more and more research over time, especially into you know things uh, like the monetary system, the plumbing Uh, That's where uh, my familiarity with the euro dollar came from. And over the last quarter century, I've sort of migrated from portfolio management into research more exclusively, just trying to make sense of what the hell's going on here and what's what's going on with the financial system, how it all all fits together, how it all all, uh, puts together and everything that happens that – you kind of wonder what what that was. What is Wall Street up to? What are the banks doing? There's usually a euro dollar component to it. So basically, my job nowadays is mostly research. Okay, so you mentioned being a portfolio manager in the dot com bubble. Um, personally, I think being a portfolio manager and being a researcher are two different parts of this industry, right? Because when you're a portfolio manager, you have to be concerned with the sequence of returns. Whereas I would argue, when you're a researcher, you're more concerned with the endpoint rather than necessarily, I think, how you get there. Um, in your experience, when you were doing that portfolio management uh, in the dot-com bubble, uh, what is it that you were thinking as you were looking at things going vertical and how are you trying to manage around that? Because a lot of people were correct back then in saying that th- that was going to burst. You'd have this tech wreck, but a lot of people still got hurt even though they quote-unquote saw it. No, I think you're absolutely right, Michael, that there's – you know. A portfolio manager is a very different position than research is, and you're right because your 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 goals and sort of your structure and, and uh, how you look at things are, are can be very differently. Um, when you're looking at uh, from a pure research perspective, there's a number of different facets that you're getting into. You, you know, one of them is where is this all going, but you also have to. You have to keep in mind that there's you know a process involved that's it's not the same thing as managing money for clients, and so it, it's it's a it's a completely different animal. And I think in, in some ways it doesn't have to be separate, but it might it might need to be a, a completely different kind of a department, uh, you know, with some uh, certainly a different mindset in your own mind when you're doing research versus during portfolio management. And back in the dot com age, you know, as more of a portfolio manager and you know equity research and things like that, it was. It was really 
What struck me most is the fact that most people in either resource or portfolio, portfolio management didn't really have a whole lot of interest in trying to figure out what was going on. Everybody was just making money, and it was sort of like, you know, there's this all this other stuff going on behind the scenes that seems like it needs to be uncovered, needs to be talked about. And many people in the financial services industry, yeah, you're right, there are a few people who said this is a bubble, it's going to collapse, but fewer still were, were interested in where was this actually coming from? What was it doing? I think most people were just happy with the fact that stocks were going up all the time and it almost didn't matter what you bought, that nobody wanted to spoil the illusion. And so for me, as, as a young portfolio manager and equity researcher, that was sort of an eye-opening experience where I thought, well, I might need to do some of this, more of this myself rather than leave it up to maybe the rest of the uh, rest of everybody else just looking for answers. Right. And, and that's kind of like that saying that you, you want to, you, you dance until the music stops, right? But the problem is by the time the music stops, it's probably already too late. And that's the dilemma when you're a portfolio manager, right? That you've got to be able to manage the unknowable even though it could be coming, the timing is what makes it so challenging. Yeah, and there's always career risk, right? Because if you're wrong about timing and you say, oh, I need to get out of the market, and then your clients are unhappy and they fire you and go someplace else. So you, it is a very fine line to walk of being a portfolio manager. In some ways, it's much, much more difficult than research and figuring out how the world actually works, try to try to manage money in that world. That's really the, the, the challenge. And it, you're right, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you have to be very careful about both upside as well as downside, because the market, as you know, the market will just go in one direction and then you think you've got it, you've got it all clocked, you've got it all figured out and then boom, it does something completely different. So it is a completely, it's it's a very difficult job trying to manage money, especially in the, the uh, economic and financial climate that we're in right now, which makes it incredibly challenging. Okay. So I'm glad you say it because that's a, that's a good sort of um, pivot a little bit to a discussion around process in the context of what we're living through now. Now, you've been in the business for a while, so by four years, people have said 60-40 is dead. This is not a new phenomenon. I, I've gone to plenty of conferences over the last five years. Every single year, you had a lot of people making that argument that rates would rise, stocks would fall. And all those people, including myself, I was in that camp too, uh, were ultimately proven right, right? So going back to a lot of this kind of back and forth over the last three days about defining a black swan, that makes it not a black swan. But from a portfolio management perspective, I would argue that the sequence of returns this year was unequivocally uh, a tail event, meaning that never in history, including the 70s, did you have the interaction, not just of bonds to stocks, but in particular of treasuries to stock market drawdowns, be this correlated. That's not my opinion. That's fact. I put out all this data that, that proves that out. Now, you have a process from a research perspective that you can say might see that coming. But the process process from a portfolio management perspective is very different because you are have to, having to deal with the when for when that eventuality occurs. So I say all that as a setup because I want to get your thoughts on how you think this year has played out because a lot of people are, are I think, beating their chest on this idea that we all saw this bond market route coming. And by the way, back in June of last year, I said the Fed should do an emergency rate hike. You know, back in July of 2020, I said the Fed risks either hyperinflation or defaults. So they'll probably choose hyperinflation, which you can kind of argue were, you know, was somewhat of a setup here. But how do you think about the way that things have played out? Because I think this is this environment is is ripe with a lot of hindsight bias. 
<laughs> no question, but it, isn't that always the case? But I say more so now because I feel like a lot of people have been banging on bonds because of negative rates, justifiably so, for a while, but nobody really addressed the way that it would play out. Right? And, and again, from a portfolio management perspective, that's all that matters. Yeah, you're right, because people have been saying the treasury market's going to crash ever since the first QE in 2009. Exactly. I mean, right. So, yeah, I mean, it, they said the same thing about inflation, too, or consumer prices that, you know, QE was going to unleash the inflationary monster. And all of a sudden in 2021, it's, it's, it finally seemed as if all those things finally came together. So the process begins there. You have to define what was different. What changed in 2021 that said, oh, all of a sudden, you know, we did four QE through 2014. We did another one in 2019. Interest rates didn't skyrocket. Nothing really happened. Um, Consumer prices didn't accelerate. So what was different about 2021 as compared to those episodes? Because QE wasn't different. I mean, it was a bigger number, but it was still the same thing. And so that's really where the process needs to begin, figure out what was it that actually changed. And when you look inside the actual, and certainly from a monetary perspective or the treasury market perspective or whatever, it isn't that, you know, in my opinion, it isn't that inflation changed. It was simply the COVID pandemic and the supply shock that that, uh, it uh, unleashed. So there's a difference there between consumer prices going up because supply side is inelastic supply. Uh, you know, the federal government temporarily induces a, a rightward shift in the demand curve versus monetary inflation, which is an excessive printing of currency, as everybody knows, which hasn't happened under quantitative easing in any jurisdiction that quantitative easing has ever been uh, implemented in. So if the only thing that changed was a a supply shock related to the pandemic, which I think is pretty much the case, then that means that consumer prices are not going to continue to accelerate forever because there's no money behind it. Instead, consumer prices come with an expiration date. I think that's what the the process for my process is over the second half of this year and why we're seeing recession uh, probabilities not just rise, but I think we, we might even be in a recession currently. That uh, that takes kind of the Fed out of it, that, that changes the calculus of bond, uh, not just bond market, but investing entirely um, over the re- next next little while, not, not just this, this year, but into next year. So if it's stocks down and bonds down in the first half of this year, it might just be stocks down, bonds up in the second. Ah, OK, so th- good. This is this is because I think you and I think similarly in that. And by the way. And this is kind of my point. It's like in the 70s, both stocks and bonds both lost money. But again, there were these pulses where bonds did well before ultimately making lower lows, higher yields as stocks themselves inevitably went down. You could have had the last six months a situation where bonds all broke down in one single month, stabilized, and then stocks fell down, right? My contention from a portfolio management perspective is that it's the way that it played out week to week that was beyond abnormal. Now, let's go with this point about the second half and maybe the return of, let's call it, risk-on, risk-off dynamics, where you have another pulse lower in equities, but maybe treasuries in particular go back to how they used to behave as a safe haven play. That would suggest that there's a disinflation, deflation pulse that's returning to the marketplace because historically, these kind of risk-on, risk-off inverse relationships happen because of a reassessment of the inflation narrative, at least for a moment in time. That's why volatility tends to pick up. So why do you think that that dynamic might come back in the next six months? And is, should, the, should the concern really be more around uh, disinflation, deflation? Because as much as Powell said, 
they don't quite uh, they're only now understanding how little they know about inflation. I'd argue they're only now understanding how little they understand of deflation. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. And I would, I would say, you know, look... As far as the bond market is concerned, growth and inflation expectations didn't really change all that much, no matter how high the CPIs went. You look at the shape of the yield curve. It had stayed flat and actually got flatter um, in the middle of last year. While CPIs were accelerating, the yield curve shape told you that deflationary, disinflationary risk was rising the entire time. And it took a really serious tumble around October. In fact, you see October, you see the curves all change. It wasn't just Treasury, you see Eurodollar futures, interest rate swaps. The entire market said from last October forward that um, disinflation, deflationary risks were rising all the time. And then, of course, it took a big jump in March when gas prices spiked. And I would argue that uh, what happened with interest rates is mostly at the front end, where the Fed kind of what they, what they call changed its reaction function. And they're very public about this, saying that, you know, the Fed is supposed to have a dual mandate of inflation and employment. Well, since gasoline prices got out of hand and everybody started talking about CPIs, the Fed is now a one-trick pony where they only care about the CPI. And you see that priced into every single one of the curves, too, not just treasuries, but also Eurodollar futures and everything else, where the front end of those curves are very steep. Nominally, they've gone much higher than they were in the, in the part of last year. But the back ends didn't ever change, no matter how much the Fed reaction function, so-called, kept getting priced into the market in the front end, the back end was pretty resolute, pretty certain, especially euro dollar futures over the last several months, that disinflation, deflation was going to be the inevitable result. Nothing is ever 100 percent. It's never inevitable. But the way the curves have behaved, especially recently, it's 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 pretty damn near certain the way that the market is pricing this uh, deflationary pulse is probably the best way to look at it, because it's not just the United States. It's a global phenomenon. Right. And, and, and I, want, I want you to explain to the audience the euro dollar, how it interacts with that, because I think everything that you're saying, I agree that I've been making this point for a while that inflationary shocks are inherently deflationary. Right. Because yeah. they effectively take out margin from the system. People cannot respond and companies cannot respond fast enough. So if you don't have it be gradual, that ends up being more of a earning shock, e- economic shock, which ends up resulting in commodities breaking down afterwards. Which is exactly what we're seeing now. But but talk about the the interaction with the euro dollar and and what is the euro dollar? Explain sort of your whole approach to, in looking at that as a uh, as a key part of the marketplace. Yeah, that's a big part of it too, and that's part of the deflationary shock we're seeing now is that the euro dollar system, which is the real global monetary reserve currency system, which goes back into the you know seventy some odd years, sixty some odd years into the nineteen fifties, and it's completely misunderstood, misidentified. And it renders central banks largely as, um, you know, symbolic engines of uh, expectations manipulation. Um, what it really means is it's, it's a bank-centered system, even though it's denominated primarily in U.S. dollars. It's bank-centered. It's virtual currency. It's a ledger system operated by these global banks outside the United States. 
It was responsible for what happened in 2008 that was never really about subprime mortgages. It was instead a global dollar shortage. But the worst part about it was was that it was a global dollar shortage, but it also represented a structural change in the global reserve currency system. And ever since then, the reason why people have been proclaiming inflation from QE but never getting it is because this, this background monetary environment has been disinflationary, if not outright deflationary, ever since August 9th of 2007. And that's true of the last couple of years, as I said before. Even in 2021, there were all sorts of deflationary, disinflationary money signals coming from the monetary system itself. Um, including curves and things like that, which tell you that um, there were problems, not just in the real economy, not just the fact that we're dealing with a supply shock. And as you said, Michael, that, you know, historically speaking, the cure for high prices is high prices. Um, whenever you have a supply shock, inevitably, that's probably going to lead to recession. But there are also monetary fractures and fault lines, too, including the biggest one, which is a shortage of collateral, which I think most people... When you say there's a shortage of collateral, what you really mean is U.S. Treasuries, and that kind of triggers a, a sort of a, a counterintuitive thought because how can there be a shortage of U.S. Treasuries when the federal government has been going insane, crazy, issuing Treasuries over the last several years? And of course, in mainstream, most in mainstream economic and financial commentary, everybody says there's too many Treasuries. But we can see very clearly from the market data, from the way things have behaved, that from a monetary perspective, there is a deflationary risk in the fact that we don't have enough good quality collateral throughout the entire global U.S. dollar monetary system, this euro dollar system, and that it has gotten a lot worse over the last several months, coincident to you know these all all these macro recessionary signals too. So you have sort of a double whammy of real deep money fundamentals being deflationary at the same time the economy is becoming very much like that in the same kind of way which produces a lot of downside deflationary risk for this for going forward the second half of this year going forward too which is interesting right because you could maybe perversely make an argument that the thing the government really missed out on was uh, issuing a whole boatload of new treasuries to really fund all the unfunded liabilities at lower rates to create the better collateral to actually have the sort of more lasting inflation as opposed to the shortage of collateral, which makes the debt load because of de the deflationary impact of that conceivably worse longer term. Yeah, no, it is extremely perverse. And it's been that way since, you know, 2008, 2009, because that's why, you know, I, I understand why people say treasuries need to blow up because the government needs to, the government needs to get its fiscal house in order. And how are we going to get these politicians to stop spending so much? And the only way to do it is for bond vigilante vigilantism to come back. But the problem with that is it can't come back until we solve this collateral problem. And because uh, you know, repo market derivatives, everything that's collateralized. And because the deepest, most sophisticated, dependable market is U.S. Treasuries, the government has been able to get away with this perverse uh, incentive structure where no matter how much debt they issue, the market wants it. Not because they want to you know, invest in government treasuries, but they need them as balance sheet tools. These are things that you need to uh, you need to have available either through securities lending or some other transformation or on your balance sheet um, just being owned uh, outright on the balance sheet in order to participate in the modern monetary and financial and commercial system. 
And the government has been able to get away with that this entire time. And you, you're right. It almost sounds like MMT, where we need the government to actually issue more treasuries in order for this thing to work. But the problem with that is that the government spends more money and, and borrows more in terms of deficits as to issue these treasuries. It has a negative effect on the economy, as we've seen in Japan for however many decades. So it's almost like a catch-22. We need the government to spend more – or you need the government to issue more securities – but in issuing more securities, they become they create a bigger drag and a more inefficiency in the global or the U.S. and global economy, and it's there's there's really no way to break the cycle. How much of that collateral shortage is due to new rules or regulations uh, post GFC, <laughs> right? Because the the part of the issue is also that the government mandates that treasuries are the only collateral that banks, for example, can can borrow against or whatever it would be. So. Uh, I'm trying to get into the plumbing because I myself don't know. I'm curious. How much has this been sort of the government's own doing in these sort of regulations around that? We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. There are, I mean, the uh, Basel Three regulations, the SLR, the HQLA, you know, mandating liquid, liquid assets. Um, that's part of it, and that's sort of uh, made things, it made balance sheets less uh, flexible and dynamic. But the real thing, it, it this goes back to 2008, 2007, 2008. Dealers didn't need the government to come along and say you need to be more liquid. They started becoming more liquid in 2007, 2008, which was the whole point of the crisis, and so. These regulations that have been applied afterwards are simply codifying what banks were already doing. That was already a problem to begin with. And really, the issue is the pre-crisis era where the entire monetary system got to become dependent upon what was really crappy collateral. And then uh, not just crappy collateral, but uh, overvalued crappy collateral. And the system just couldn't suffer a revaluation of you know subprime mortgages, but not just subprime mortgages, all sorts of uh, financial products that just probably were not properly, were never properly uh, valued correctly, and that just it unleashed a structural change where the only real top quality collateral nowadays is governments, and it's not because of the fundamental characteristics of governments. It's all about the liquidity in those marketplaces. So because the treasury market is the most dependable, that's what you know the repo market wants is collateral. That's really kind of the whole thing. And the funny thing is that the HQLA and even quantitative easing, those actually have made it worse in some respects. Quantitative easing is especially because think about what QE does. QE takes treasuries away from dealers and locks it up in the Fed's portfolio in SOMA which means they're not really available to be used in the marketplace. So as scarce as collateral has been, the uh, the Federal Reserve actually makes it worse by doing QE. So you can actually make the argument the quantitative easing itself is deflationary because of the way it uh, strips the system of usable collateral. A hundred – this is this – is, Jeff, I swear to God, you're, you're, you're framing things exactly the way I've myself have kind of argued for a number of years here. And that's why, by the way, every single round of – of QE ended up having this this odd uh, perverse effect. They bought bonds, but then yields rose, and then they sold bonds, and then yields fell. 
right? Every time they try to get out of the balance sheet game because uh, the perception is around that it's only inflationary for financial assets, but not really for the real economy. Exactly. And that's 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 really what matters. And at the end of the day, it's nice to to see stocks go up. But if stocks go up because, you know, in, in despite the fact that the uh, the real economy never recovers or never really actually grows anymore, that's that's big, big trouble. And that's really where we are. And it's funny, we've gotten into this series where, um, you know, the economy will kind of start to recover. The monetary system will kind of look like it's starting to recover a little bit. These reflationary episodes, but it never lasts. And usually one of the triggers for it to not last and, you know, for the, the system to go the other way, to see yields start to fall again, to see deflationary uh, probabilities start to rise across markets, it usually is collateral. And there's usually some kind of collateral um, collateral trigger where you can identify that, you know, you know, there's just not enough in the system. And the way that the system tries to supply collateral that isn't there leads to these almost pro-cyclical effects where collateral shortages are necessarily become worse over time. And part of that has to do with the fact that the way the monetary system actually works is, you know, it's not just a fractional reserve system. That's it, There's fractional reserve lending in collateral itself, securities lending, collateral transformations, where during these sort of risk on um, risk-taking periods like 2017, for example, or to some extent 2020 and 2021, what happens is you see a lot of dealers, you see a lot of collateral uh, redistributors will accept more junk, uh, crappy quality collateral because they become more optimistic. And so that sort of infects the entire monetary system with this junk. And, it, you know, it's almost like embedding, a, you know, a self-destruct mechanism because as soon as the system becomes a little more risk averse, then you're right back in the same situation where you have too much junk quality collateral and not enough good quality collateral. And it just leads to the self-reinforcing spiral where everybody gets herded into U.S. Treasuries, which then leads to all sorts of other knock on feedback consequences, too, because, you know, other markets see these this, the uh, deflationary probabilities rise and falling or flattening yield curves. And then that risk aversion spreads to other marketplaces. So it really comes back to the way the monetary system actually works and how it was never really fixed in 2007 and 2008. And in some ways, quantitative easing has made it worse. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there does seem to be something different there. And I, I think I would argue, Eric, that um, at least in my view, that a lot of what's going on in the higher grade corporate sector is all about rate risk, especially as it pertains, you know, the Fed function and everything else, front end of the curve, building off of that dynamic. And that there's sort of a liquidity premium built into the higher grade corporates that have sort of sheltered it, sheltered the spreads compared to some of the other spreads. When you look at the, the high yield spreads, some of those are higher than they were in 2018 and starting to look more like 2015 and 2016, which really goes to show you the bifurcation in the corporate market, which is, again, I think uh, part of it has to do with the, this collateral issue where a lot of junk corporates are are in in the uh, collateral stream. They're being used in the marketplace in that in that respect. And the market right now, the first half of this year, is sort of sorting good good collateral from bad collateral, or at least the collateral that isn't going to be revaluated or downgraded or become some sort of uh, uh, non negotiable use. And that's really why the junk corporate spreads have moved a lot more than I think the high grade. But I think over time, as the system continues to reevaluate the repo market in particular, and derivatives to some extent too, but um, 
as these these collateral chains start to fall start to collapse in on themselves, I think you'll see spreads widen for many of the corporate bond tiers, except for the highest tiers, just because there's a lot of of credit risk as well as now you got to add liquidity risk on top of it. It's it's just a double whammy. That's a possibility, but I would say that the Fed quote unquote pivot is probably this year, not a, not a year down the road. So these these events are probably on an accelerated schedule. At least that's what the market is saying. And it's interesting. Do you think that uh, that corporate bonds, especially the higher grade stuff, have already suffered the losses they're going to suffer? That's a possibility, of course. I mean. I think that the, when bond yields start to fall and bond prices in the treasury market start to go up, that'll that'll definitely be the same for the highest grade corporates. Um, the question is whether or not the liquidity remains there across the rest of the corporate market, which is that's where I'm a little bit suspicious because of, of what's happened so far in the high yield market, that uh, liquidity has dried up a lot, especially in the euro bond market where it's suspect. And I don't think it'll take a whole lot for that to start to seep down and creep into even some of the uh, the, the the not not quite high yield, but the, the the lower lower higher quality corporate bond market segment too. So you have a you have a confluence of potential risk, and I think the other thing is we have to keep in mind that uh, I don't think people are prepared for this to happen this year, even though the markets are saying. Yeah, that there's a good probability that the Fed stops hiking rates after September and starts cutting them. Um, I think that's going to be an enormous sentimental shock as well, where people maybe just start, you know, portfolio managers start reassessing the re- the repo market, just starts reassessing everything all at once, and it's sort of one of those situations where you just you just hit the sell button just to get out of things. There could be that kind of disorderly settle uh, selling, disorderly dismantling of these collateral chains, in particular, where Liquidity does become a, a real big factor in setting all sorts of prices across all sorts of uh, asset classes. Which, by the way, means stocks and bonds keep selling off. But I keep going back to which bonds, which duration, which credit quality. Whenever people keep saying 60, 40 is dead and stocks and bonds are still going to both uh, suck win for a while, you have to get more nuanced. Because in that scenario, you talk about default risk increasing, spreads widening, high yield becoming higher yield. Whereas maybe finally government debt acts the way it should as the deflationary safe haven asset actually making money, dropping yield while all of the bonds keep selling off. Yeah, and that's the one big difference of the first. That's what, as you said, Michael, that's what made the first half of this year so unique is that for the first I, I time. I black swan, but a lot of people are, are correcting me on that. But I, I, again, I'm going to go back to it's not a black swan because it happened. It's a black swan in the way that it happened. Yes. Even the drawdown. Again, I go back to in the 70s when you had these drawdowns and equities. Treasury still acted as the counter asset in the midst of the sequence. We have never seen anything like that this year. You can argue that stocks and bonds, anybody could have seen this coming, or bonds, you could have seen it coming. Which bonds and in what sequence? That's what makes this so different. Yes, the sequence. And I think the sequence is about to go back to the way it's supposed to, or at least, you know, the the higher grade, you know, U.S. Treasuries, liquidity markets, those kinds of things. You know, Apple and Google are going to see their bond prices skyrocket because they're Apple and Google and everybody. There's a liquid market for those things. And it was really just the Federal Reserve and how aggressive it became that pushed up the front end of the yield curve. And then the front end of every curve that sort of threw everybody for the loop. It was the Fed alone that changed, whereas the market stance on growth and inflation, that didn't change. Curves were flat, inverted, all that stuff. It's just a matter of when does the Fed get forced back into where it's normally normally is, which is, you know, cutting rates, not raising them. And that's where the, I think the euro dollar futures in particular sends such a powerful signal because as inverted as it is, which is 
incredible, especially over the last couple of weeks, how much it's changed and where it's inverted. The market thinks the Fed is pretty much done. And if the Fed is close to done, maybe there's another rate hike in June uh, and another one in July. We'll see about September. But if the Fed, as soon as the market smells that the Fed is getting closer to being done and, and getting closer to rate hikes, then you're going to see the rally in nominal prices across a lot of the higher quality stuff. But you're absolutely right, Michael. That doesn't extend to the entire quote-unquote bond market. It only extends to those markets that exhibit the best liquidity characteristics because that's what becomes prioritized in any of these deflationary pulses. It's liquidity above everything else. And if there is no liquidity in the triple B segment, for example, then that's a place that's going to get hit pretty hard. I have to tell you, I have to tell you, Jeff, real quick. I, I, I hope you are right selfishly because I've been hoping myself, and people say I hope it's not a strategy, but when you're a portfolio manager, you have a process, you do have to hope that the cycle comes to your process. This idea that these flight to safety trades do happen. I put, I put out a, a chart earlier that shows if you look at treasuries relative to the S&P, you can see it correlates very highly to the VIX because it's trying to play off of tail high volatility junctures. Um, if you do go back to that normalcy, I hope selfishly as somebody who's Got skin in the game like you. I hope that happens because at least I have a chance to come back. Because if you're in an environment where stocks and bonds and treasures in particular keep correlating like this, it's brutal to try to manage through. Yeah, and I think that's why you look at all these market signals and they're telling you the same thing. I mean, just the U.S. dollar's exchange value and the fact that it has spiked so high, not just against the euro, but against a number of currencies. The Chinese yuan, for example, plummeting a couple months ago. These are all deep financial indications that something deflationary is building in the monetary system. And then you pile recession risk, which, again, I don't think is some future property. I think there's a good chance we're in recession right now. You pile these things on top of one another and it just it, 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 it uh, for lack of a better term, it puts the things it puts these market sequences back where they belong, because the one thing that has been out of sequence has been the Fed. And that's the front end of the curve. And so you have all these other market signals, the dollar, uh, euro dollar futures as inverted as they are, the treasury market, interest rate swaps. I mean, all of these really big, massive markets where the biggest players are, are, are actively trading and they're all telling you the same thing. That it's not inflation, it's not going to continue, and that the Fed is going to have to face the fact that the economy is is going in the wrong direction and that there are really serious um, deflationary monetary risks involved here. So it's, it, it, you know, as, as much of a matter of time as it is, I think um, timing is is kind of in your favor. And that's that's really the problem with these uh, these kinds of things is you're right. You want these things to work out because you're positioned for them. But, you know, like when they when they call it a bull steepener in the treasury market, well, it's bullish for people who are holding treasuries as the rest of the world falls apart. And that's really the, the really downside here is that beyond just simply investment, investment fundamentals and investment considerations, there's nothing good here. This is all really bad. And it's going to work out, you know, in, you know, at a worst possible time where, uh, we still haven't recovered from 2020, and to go into a recession, maybe even a nasty recession. If these curves are right, this is not a good. This is not going to be a, just a mild dot com kind of thing. To do to pile this recession on top of another one, um, you know, it, it's 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 frightening in one sense. Yeah, you never see something like that. I mean, um, just. Just Friday, for example, you saw the long data contracts in the morning session when everybody was panicking. The longer data contracts were up almost 30 basis. But you never see moves like that. 
which is one of the, the key signals, I think, is tells us that we're closer to, quote unquote, it happening than maybe people are ready to, uh, to assess. I think, you know, the public, by and large, has kind of settled in on the idea that there's probably going to be a recession. Policymakers, politicians, central bankers, they're all going to be in denial till the very end. But I think the public has kind of said, yeah, there's something not right here. And I think the the surprise for everybody is maybe how nasty it gets and maybe even how prolonged it could be because of the way these markets have moved. And again, you're right. June 14th was the absolute peak because the market sort of reassessed the Fed's quote unquote reaction function in the light of first the European Union cutting themselves off of Russian oil and what that was going to do to oil prices potentially. And then second was the shock of the, uh, what was it, the May CPI, which was supposed, which accelerated when it was supposed to decelerate. And so there was sort of a Fed panic in the first part of June, going back to the last part of May, that in some sense has sort of corrected itself. Um, but that goes to show you that there's this bifurcation, as Michael is saying, the sequences are all off which has created a lot of uncertainty because people don't really know what to do and how to frame this kind of environment. It's really difficult in one sense because you see consumer prices going one way, the Fed doing something it hasn't done in 30 years. But in the other sense, we've seen all this stuff before and we know how it plays all plays out in the, this, this, this disinflationary, deflationary uh, um, inevitable consequence. So, it's a really more about timing in my mind, and, and that's why the markets are sending these signals that are saying, you know, maybe it's not so much about timing anymore. It's more about how bad is this going to get? Oh, I think June 14 is when also 30-year yields topped. I mean, I'm just looking at TLT as a proxy. That was the low, right, as you're talking about the, the euro-dollar move. And, and I will say that, that, you know, this is, again, go back to the role of portfolio manager versus research. The, the challenge is, do you change your process based on what happened the last six months because everything is so non-synchronized the way historically it is, or do you simply wait for the reversion? And it sounds to me like you believe the reversion to historical relationships is coming. I certainly hope so, too. But, you know, it, it's like I always keep going back to this point that you cannot change an approach. You cannot chase the cycle. The cycle has to come to you. Right. And that's the, the hard part. And that goes back to the original question, right, Michael, where you said, you know, what is where do we start our process? And for the last this part of this this uh, last cycle, this process began in 2021 when we said, "Is something fundamentally different this time?" And if the answer to that question was yes, then you change your process and look at things differently. But if you if you continue for me, it's it's all about the monetary system because inflation is money, uh, as Milton Friedman said. Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, and so if there wasn't a change, a fundamental shift in the monetary system, a fundamental shift in collateral availability, then you know it was just it was always just a matter of time. You know, transitory was the right word. As much as people hate that word, because it's now been over a year, and it doesn't sound like transitory should apply to a period longer than a couple weeks. Um, as long as your fundamental picture didn't change, as long as the process didn't change last year, it was always going to be transitory, which meant you were going to be um, susceptible and you were going to be uh, uh, you know, at risk of suffering something like the first half of this year where you, know, you have all of these unique characteristics hitting at the same time, which meant you, know, you, you, weren't, you were outside of where you, were, where you normally would be. And then you have to just stick to your process and say, did something fundamentally change, even though I'm getting hammered this for the first half of this year? And if the answer continues to be no, nothing fundamentally changed, you got to stick to your process. No, I'm, I'm glad you said it because I've made, made that point many times before. It's like 
the word transitory was vilified, but the reality is nobody ever defined what transitory was, right? In the context of long cycles, you can argue that three years is transitory. Absolutely. Right, right? But, 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 and this is why this whole narrative is so insane to me. It's like everyone made the assumption that the Fed was wrong in saying it was transitory. They could still be right, just they'd never defined it properly, right? And that's why I always go back to narratives you have to be careful of. You have to ask a little bit deeper and define things properly to really make a, a true assessment of where things might be going. Well, yeah, on macro, macroeconomic scales, multi-years can be transitory. You go back to the exactly. 1940s, for example, 1946 to 48, we saw some of the worst consumer price conditions in, in American history. I think in 47, the annual rate got to be almost 20%, yet that was transitory, even though it was a two-year period. Two years where the inflation got to be 20%, and yet it was still transitory because it wasn't a monetary thing. It was a supply shock, just like we're experiencing right now. So you're and I think, you know, People, the public, in in some sense, was right to question the use of the transitory because it sounds like it should be a couple months. It sounds like it should be okay. It's it's October twenty twenty one. Why isn't it ending? And I think there needed to be a better explanation of, hey, you know, we don't really fully understand all of the supply bottlenecks and all the intricacies of, of what's going on in the in the pandemic related, especially in October. I mean, we were just coming off the Delta wave. There was another round of, of real problems going on uh, in terms of shipping and, and the logistics and all this stuff. I think that the Fed and really just economic observers in general would have done a, a much better job had they said, look, this is a supply thing. It's transitory. We don't really know how long it's going to be. You could see inflation accelerate. You could see consumer prices accelerate from here. But we're still very confident that in the in the longer run, things will go back to the way they were before because fundamentally nothing changed outside of this, te this temporary transitory disruption to the way things work. The, the, the important takeaway, and that'll bring in Deerpoint, who's been waiting very patiently. The important uh, thing there is you have to ask the question of has causation changed, right? It's like I have a lot of people saying to me, you know, you have to skate to where the puck is going so you can't look backwards. Well, that's not fully true. You have to look at history and prior periods, which may be similar, may be dissimilar, but still look at everything because that's the only way you can see if there's causation to then assess if the future is going to look very different. And unless the entire capitalist system uh, is changed because of the dynamic of interest rates, the risk-free rate, and everything else, uh, then you have to bet the things normalized. Yeah, as far as the second one, I think um, the stress tests, I mean, no, I don't, does anybody put, uh, put much stock into those things? Uh, but, you know, by and large, ever since 2007, 2008, banks have been fortifying their balance sheets, and not just for regulatory purposes, because they don't want to be the next Lehman Brothers. They don't want to be the next Bear Stearns. They know the liquidity environment is not what it's been proclaimed to be in the public, certainly not what Janet Yellen said about it being resilient a couple of years ago. So they have been prepared or preparing for um, potential, uh, potential like we're seeing now or in March 2020. So I'm not really worried about the, uh, any repeat of Lehman Brothers. I don't think there'll ever be another Lehman Brothers. That doesn't mean there won't be some outlier banks that end up getting into trouble, maybe uh, bailed out or whatever. But I don't think you're going to see a wave of bank failures like we saw in 2007, 2008. And to me, that's not really the primary risk, nor to your first question, the real element of contagion here. It's almost worse than that because 
when it was when it was, when the, the primary liquidity risk was individual institutions, you could sort of handle that. I don't think it was handled very well. In fact, I think it was it was handled poorly in 2007, 2008. But that's one thing when you have uh, individual institutions that are the problem. I think now that we have individual institutions that are fortified, the real problem is the system. Because now you don't know where to fix the issue. It's not like you can fix, you can bail out one bank and fix it, and then the whole system goes back to normal once the banking system or once these individual institutions are reasonably assured of their solvency. It's really it's a system wide thing. And so the the point of failure isn't, you know, another Lehman Brothers going down. It's the fact that everybody suffers lack of liquidity for everybody for any reason. And it's where you see Lebanon, for example, start to fail. You see small countries fail, like Sri Lanka. Um, which is a much worse proposition than if we were just dealing with another Lehman Brothers. So to your both of your questions, I think because we live in a dynamic world and things change all the time, we can still see serious liquidity issues arise, which I think we already have. And you, you pointed out a couple of them already um, where these are at warning levels. These are telling you something's not right. Um but I don't think it leads to a bank failure so much as it does maybe larger, more important, more um, economic sort of consequences. Well, I think it's like any other, you know, you look at these uh, these uh, periods or episodes where we go into these liquidity crisis and they, they, in one sense, they look like any historic bank run in any period in any jurisdiction in history. And that eventually they kind of run themselves out. Everybody subtracts as much leverage as they possibly can, or you know, uh, leverage gets expunged from the system, and you eventually you find a settled state. Um, when enough leverage has been removed, everybody seems to be okay with it. Uh, they start doing normal activities again, a little bit of risk taking, and it doesn't you know nobody gets their head bitten off. And it, it, it's it's impossible to tell where that settled state actually is. And you hope that settled state isn't, you know, somewhere so far down, it leads to catastrophic financial and economic damage. But in the last couple of times that we've been through these, the, the markets have been able to find a reasonably non-catastrophic settled state. Of course, that depends on where you are. You go back to 2014 and 2015, it seemed like the U.S. was fine. But, you know, the rest of the emerging markets around the world were absolutely obliterated um, so, but, you know, the, the answer to your question is, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows, but it's not like the system will just collapse forever in on itself and become a black hole. And eventually enough leverage gets thrown out of the system. Enough balance sheet uh, contraction takes place that the, we get to a low risk position that allows for rebuilding essentially to take place. Well, yeah, I don't think I've ever said it's 100% China. And the, the, to answer that question, nobody really knows. Um, it's not 100% China, but there is some correlation between what the Chinese are doing, what's happening in various other marketplaces, and uh, Chinese holding of, of reserve assets. And you can see that by correlating the tick data, for example, uh, that, that shows treasury holdings in Belgium and treasury holdings in mainland China, and the Chinese reporting in safe assets. The, I mean, the the, the uh, their own reporting of what they hold as reserve assets. And you can see there is a a pass more than passing correlation. It's not a one hundred percent correlation. So we can reasonably assume the Chinese are doing something in Belgium. It's not entirely. It's not you know. There's there's other things involved. You know, in twenty fourteen, you could see Russia depositing treasuries in Belgium. I think that's what happened in December of twenty twenty one. Russians were depositing treasuries in Belgium. So it's not all China in Belgium treasuries, but I think there's a uh, it's, it's 
it's a large part Chinese activities. And why Belgium? Because that's the home country of Euroclear, which is the big European uh, derivatives clearer. And that's really where the Chinese are most uh, active in terms of managing their reserves, as well as the Chinese connection to the wider euro dollar system. Because gold isn't liquid. As, as much as it pains for me to say, um, gold is sort of useless in a liquidity crisis. In fact, it's an anchor in a liquidity crisis because it's, it has such a such a low level of liquidity that it's it's undependable. Um, you can't you can't use it. You can't swap it very easily. It's really difficult. Uh, there was a particular episode in 2010, for example, where a lot of banks that were very much in trouble in collateral and repo markets had to go to the BIS to swap. I think it was 420 tons of gold, and even that was difficult. And the BIS is supposed to do that. Um, so gold is not a liquid asset, and in a liquidity crisis, it's the last thing you want to hold. Well, munis are difficult to really assess because there's, the liquidity for munis is very spotty to begin with. And it's sort of one of those things where everybody assumes it's a, it's a liquid market because it's government. There's some kind of uh, implicit guarantee there. Whether that's true or not, I think we might find out. But there is definitely the same sort of risks, the same sort of bifurcation risk, especially in, muni, in the muni market as there is in the corporate market because – Again, in a, in a deflationary pulse, I love that, that term, Michael, any kind of deflationary pulse, uh, everything gets thrown out the window except for liquidity characteristics because over leveraging the way the, the monetary system works, that just becomes a priority above everything else, which unfortunately, again, prioritizes uh, things like U.S. Treasuries and maybe and to some extent cushions the blow in muni bonds. But I still think it's as Michael's his theme here is it's more nuanced than just saying muni bonds are going to be OK or muni bonds are not going to be OK. I think some muni bonds will not be OK and some will be. Right. And and, it's, and that's the thing that's always tricky about how to think about treasuries, because, yes, they're bonds, but they're not like bonds. Right. When you need that diversification the most, it's not 60, 40 that helps. It's really 60, 40 if the 40 isn't. Uh, credit risk, right? It's really the kind of the, the treasury side, which is the most, I think, important part of diversification. But let, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, what what can surprise on the positive side, because everyone and their brother is on Google looking up the word recession, right? Everybody is uh, concerned about uh, the midterms. Everyone, there's sort of a, a think a, a palpable mood here that. Things are nasty, especially when you look at things like the misery index, not just here in the U.S., but overseas. But I look at all that negativity and I say to myself, OK, there's always still a non-zero probability of an upside surprise, something that could change the game somewhat. Um, and I know it's very hard to anticipate or predict that, but talk through, do some scenario analysis with me, Jeff, on what could go right to maybe turn uh, the dynamics around such that maybe we don't. Uh, have a lasting recession or maybe things end up being OK and and risk assets recover. Yeah, I th well, I think recession sort of baked in. I think people, you know, there's a reason why consumer confidence of the, you know, Michigan surveys at a record low, for example, and some of the other surveys around the rest of the world. That's another thing here. Let's be clear that this is not just a U.S. phenomenon. If there's a recession, it's going to be a global recession. And if it's a the recession has already started, it's a recession that's already started around the rest of the world, too. Um, so, but if that actually is happening, and that, that is something that is going to happen, there is a upside potential if it's, say, maybe really sharp, but also very short. Uh, maybe a scenario like the 1980 recession, which started in January of 80 and was over with by July, which, in, uh, again, 
macroeconomic scales is that is relatively short period of time. So if we get a very sharp uh, downturn here at the very beginning, it could be that before we even get to the middle midpoint of the recession, markets are already starting to think about recovery. So maybe we get a short recession that's really nasty, but it doesn't stick around very long. And then by the end of the year, we're thinking uh, things are good. Maybe maybe it, uh, uh, the, so the supply shock has been sorted out. Consumer prices start to go back down. Things start to look a little bit better than they were uh, certainly this part of the year. So it could be that if it, what sounds like the worst case is actually the best case. And I'm curious, do you think that um, these since you're you're big on data versus narratives like I am, do you think this um, this narrative around deglobalization um, causing higher terminal rates because onshore means more inflationary pressure? Do you think that is too um, uh, too out there in terms of a narrative that that it may not play out that way? That we kind of go back to a world where those labor arbitrage dynamics uh, are still in play. I actually think it's kind of backwards. I think that uh, deglobalization has been happening, and coincident to this monetary breakdown of the euro dollar system, because those two things go together. It was the euro dollar system's rise from the 1950s that solved Triffin's paradox, which allowed globalization to happen in the first place. And without the monetary system in place, you don't have globalization. But I don't think you know as deglobalization continues to progress into the 2020s, which I think will happen, um, that doesn't necessarily mean it adds to uh, consumer prices. In fact, I think it takes away. It's deflationary in the same sense that monetary deflation is deflationary markets because it adds frictions. It raises inefficiencies. And frictions and inefficiency in any economy are inherently deflation. They're drags on growth, not add, uh, add, not, don't add to the nominal situation. So deglobalization de in the economy goes hand in hand with deflation in the monetary system. That's a, that's a super interesting way of framing it and, and to think through. I think we have to save that for maybe another uh, conversation. Everybody is here. Please make sure you follow not just Jeff Snyder, but also my friend uh, Eric Basmajan, who always uh, adds some good color commentary and is a very thoughtful uh, person in the field as well. Jeff, I'm glad that you spent the, uh, the Sunday with us. Real pleasure. I found myself nodding throughout the entire conversation. Maybe that's just confirmation bias because of the way that I like to think about things as well. But uh, but but uh, you know I, I do I do want to just say for everybody that's here, look, we're all trying to figure out the unknowable tomorrow, right? So whether you agree or disagree, the most important thing is that you're here listening and at least thinking, right? Because I think too often people just read a tweet, and not really kind of going deeper in terms of what is underlying the way the copy is, right? Which I can I can certainly relate to. So thank you, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you, Jeff. We'll be in touch. All right, take care. Thanks, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes 
corrections, and bear markets.